How can you be part of a religious community that straight up denies Sometimes science it feels or like sees the it as suspicious? The church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the Why are they so obsessed with people? I would never be a part of a church that is not welcoming The church is the most vocal political voice against immigrants. Some churches still don't want to claim that worship was the actual how can your story be good that is from the majority of people on the church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the like, culture is how is that actually it seems like so much of the church exclusive anti-critical thinking homophobic too narrow judgmental disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world <sighs> the church needs therapy welcome to the newest episode of the church needs therapy and today our guest is Dr. John Philip Newell. JP is a Celtic teacher and author of spirituality who calls the modern world to reawaken to the sacredness of the earth and every human being. Which if you have a, if you have a, um, a business card, it's a great line to have on there for people <laughs> to know what you're about. <laughs> JP's PhD is from the University of Edinburgh, and he has authored over 15 books, including A New Ancient Harmony, Sounds of the Eternal, The Rebirthing of God, and his upcoming book, which we'll be talking about today, <clears throat> Sacred Earth, Sacred Soul. In 2016, he began the School of Earth and Soul, originally called the School of Celtic Consciousness and teaches regularly in the United States and Canada, as well as leading international pilgrimages and weeks on Iona in the Western Isles of Scotland. His voice naturally integrates the poetic and the intellectual, the head as well as the heart, and spiritual awareness as well as political and ecological concern. And my own part, I'm going to add, if you only knew the depth the brilliance, the profundity, and the wisdom of the man I'm talking to right now. This is your favorite writer's favorite writer. <laughs> this is your favorite mystic's favorite mystic. So for me, it would be like being in a culture and introducing people to a gem they've never seen before, only to hopefully watch them fall in love with the beauty that is present within it. So JP, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me personally and with the listening community of The Church Needs Therapy today. Thank you, Kevin. How very good to be with you. I'm gonna start by, I mean, I have to resist my temptation to just use this hour to talk to JP for my, for my own benefit and all of the questions and the ways I would want to go. And I want to jump right into his book, Sacred Earth, Sacred Soul, so people can start to get a feel for that and can get a glimpse of what the wisdom within this book has to offer to us today. So JP, you write in your book, in the Celtic tradition, it was said that we suffer from soul forgetfulness. We have forgotten who we are and have fallen out of true relationship with the earth and with one another. What are some of the things that you see today that are symptoms of the reality that we have fallen out of true relationship with the earth and one another? Yeah, I, I think the, the primary forgetfulness or forgetfulness that in many ways shatters um, all the others or includes uh, aspects of all the others is, is our forgetting of the sacredness of the earth uh, that has led us to the uh, climate crisis that we're in the midst of today, um, which, uh, which throws a question mark around the very survival of the earth as we have known it. And um, so I, I, I think that that is the, the, the primary forgetfulness, the context in which I think many of these other forgetfulnesses happen. I think in so much of our Western culture, uh, dominated by sort of shadow forms of masculine energy and mm. masculine control, we have very tragically uh, fallen, uh, fallen out of relationship or have forgotten the sacredness of the feminine. And, and by that, I'm, I'm meaning certainly the, the sacredness of the feminine in women, but also the, the, the feminine 
dimensions uh, within us as men and the feminine uh, dimensions of our communities, uh, which are primarily about uh, working and living in relationship uh, rather than in separation. Mm. Mm. And, um, you know, the, li the list could go on. We, um, we, we have forgotten about the, the sacredness uh, at the heart of other great spiritual traditions. And mm. we've forgotten that we need one another uh, to, to uh, be complete in, in the wisdom that we are trying to serve. And um, we've forgotten ab about the sacredness of, of other races. And we've, we've, uh, our attention to this has, has been highlighted uh, in the past year by the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, so all, I see all of these as, as very interrelated. Um, mm -hmm. But the, the big context is, is one of having forgotten the sacredness of the earth. Mm. Yeah, I wanted to begin with that because that the the places where we experience the separateness and the disruptions of relationality between ourselves, between the earth is such a, here's the environment we're in and here's how this book and this wisdom helps us reimagine and give birth to a new way, a continuing way of evolving and unfolding and moving forward. You know, and then each you have this, I told JP quickly before we came on, but the intros to this man's book will blow your face off of your face or whatever it is. Like the intentionality, this as, as a person who's been writing more the past year, I'm like the depth and power in the simplicity of a single sentence. This man writes is like one of the most amazing things. But after the intro, each chapter in this book, each chapter is drawing upon one of the great Celtic voices throughout its rich and diverse history. So for those of you, when I bring up Celtic, JP is actually in Scotland right now, if you were wondering why that, that, that phrase, that term keeps coming up. But you write in the book, I treat each of these teachers as an icon for today to help reawaken us to the true heart of one another in the earth. What did you discover or freshly rediscover in these voices as you went back into them in order to explore what they have to say to us today. Mm, yeah, thanks, Kevin. If, if I could, um, if you'd allow me to, to go back to the point you're making about um, simplicity in the introduction. Oh, I, um, please. I, you know, I, I cherish um, simplicity of expression, and uh, uh, one of my favorite poets in the Scottish context is Edwin Muir, uh, M-U-I-R, same spelling as John Muir, mm. uh, Edwin Muir from the Orkney Islands. And uh, one of the things he, he says is that truth is not too complicated for expression. He says that truth is too simple for expression. Mm. And I've, I've loved that saying, and, and uh, it, it rings so true to me, and, and it's something that uh, has been important to me in, in my writing, but also in the way I try to articulate and live, that, that uh, it's when we can be uh, as simple as we can in our expression. I think we're often getting closer to the truth than, than when we complicate our, our expressions. So um, simplicity is something I really cherish. I, I aim for, I, um, I look for it in other people and, and encourage it. So I, I just wanted to, I'm, I'm, so glad you, I'm so glad that's how you uh, experienced the, the, the chapter. Um, oh, absolutely, over the, and the over. Because, because that's what I'm forever aiming at. Um, but your question about what, you know, what has drawn me into these uh, particular great Celtic teachers that I draw on, and they range from the fourth century right through to a living uh, prophetic figure in the Celtic world today, like the poet Kenneth White, who I finish yeah. with. Uh, I, th I think that it's important to start with uh, Pelagius in, in chapter one, 
not only because that's a good sort of uh, way to approach it chronologically by going to one of the, one of the earliest teachers, but I think that uh, Pelagius's insights are foundational uh, in this stream of, of Celtic wisdom. I think all of the other great teachers in the stream are in one way or another picking up on, on some of the insights that Pelagius articulates. And he's such an interesting figure and, and such a courageous figure because in the fourth century, by this stage, uh, Christianity has got into bed with empire uh, in, in the Mediterranean world. And uh, it is need, it's needing to be challenged because I think when, whenever spirituality or religion uh, courts power, um, th then uh, it, it needs to be challenged. And, mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things that Pelagius saw so clearly is the sacredness at the heart of every human being. Mm. And uh, the way he put it so simply was uh, in the face of a newborn child, uh, we are gazing into the face or the countenance of the divine. Mm. And um, one of the things I love about, about Pelagius, like the, these other great teachers, is that they are often, often simply giving voice to what I think we all know deeply um, but but which we often live in a, in a state of distance from or forgetfulness of. Um, so I, I know um, that the most sacred moments of my life, uh, the, the four most sacred moments of my life, were when I held um, my four children at, um, wow. at birth in, in my arms. And uh, in their faces, I could see something of the one from whom we have all come wow. and uh, in their skin I could smell mm. the, the freshness of life's um, pure sacred origins mm. um, so I, th I think um, for me a mark of a great teacher and these are the teachers that I, I draw from in the book uh, are teachers that are articulating uh, what we all at some level know, mm. uh, but which we've sort of tragically fallen out of relationship with. Um, uh, one of the stories I tell in the book, and I, I, I so love it, and I find myself going, going back to it again and again in my teachings, but also uh, in my life and in my sort of uh, uh, critique of, of who I should be and who I should try to be as a teacher. Uh, I was in Virginia many years ago giving a talk on um, listening for the heartbeat of God, which was which. By the way, I'm, I'm going to interrupt you really quick. You can see the connection that JP and I already have because I have an intro to set up for him to tell this story later in the conversation. <laughs> so he's jumping ahead because he already knows what's happening. <laughs> I love That's it. Great. Yes, I, I must have intuited that you were looking you for You did. This, you but... looked in my eyes, you're all, yep, the Virginia story. <laughs> He's going there. <laughs> yeah. I, either that or, or you know that I, you know, I always tell the story. So anyway, <laughs> uh, there are some stories that are, are worth repeating again and again, and this is, this is one of them for me. Yeah. So I was giving a talk in Virginia on some of the themes of the Celtic tradition, and uh, particularly speaking about the sacredness of the newborn child. And Pelagius is saying that when we look into the face of a newborn child, we're looking into the face of God, freshly born among us. Mm. And uh, at the end of the talk, a woman in her 80s, I think, was coming very purposefully down the central aisle of the church with a book, with a copy of my book in hand. And uh, she was walking down the aisle so purposefully that the uh, naughty boy in me thought, she's going to hit me over the head with that. <laughs> I mean, she was really sort of marching up, um, looking pretty formidable. And, uh, but I was quite wrong, thank God. Uh, and, and when she uh, got up to me, she opened the book and said, I want to show you what I wrote in this book after I read it. And inside she had written... I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. Um. <laughs> and um, I so often wish 
that I had asked her for that copy and, mm. and her, her words because she had said so simply, again, simply and profoundly, uh, what our experience is when we hear truth that has been neglected or lost sight of, uh, we may never have heard it before, we may never have been taught it, but when we hear it, uh, something deep within us says, I knew it, mm. I knew it. And uh, one of the other reasons why I would have cherished actually having that uh, book as well as the important memory of, of her speaking to me uh, is that I would like it always to be on my desk uh, to remind me when I'm trying to teach or when I'm trying to write or to communicate that our primary role as teachers and our, this primary role that we can play for one another in terms of helping to awaken one another, our primary role is to try to utter or give expression to what our listener already deeply knows. Um, and I think one of the sort of tragic aspects of a lot of our Western Christian inheritance uh, that, that was so closely tied with empire and with political leadership from the fourth century onwards is that truth has often been seen as something to be dispensed from above, right. almost as if, let me tell you. Um, and uh, and I, I believe that that, that is uh, a, an essentially false way of teaching. I think it separates the heart of my being from the heart of your being or the heart of any being that I'm trying to communicate with. So I think our, our role is to, in love, um, try to give utterance uh, to what is in the heart of the listener. Mm. Yeah, the, <clears throat> that, that dynamic is so good. And I think in people's profound, I think especially transitional, there's this paradigm shifting, they're coming to the edge of the old and they're approaching the unknown of the new that they suspect but don't have the clarity of yet. Though I think a lot of those are the moments where once they're in the openness, they've let go of enough of the old where they're actually receptive, open, and, and, and ready enough that dynamic of when somebody, some talk, some experience they have personally gives them the energy, gives them the vision to step forward. That is, especially in those transitional times, that's when that, that dynamic arises from within. We were like, I sense that. I knew it. I didn't have the words, but that person articulated what I sensed and knew. But now that they've said it, not only does it confirm what was developing or what was present within me, but now that I can see it, it deepens and, and empowers me to keep moving forward into yeah. it. <clears throat> yeah, I think that, that, that experience is so good. And I think it, it properly provides a sense of humility for the teacher. Yeah. Because I always think that's a funny thing. Yeah. Like, you can have the wisdom to say, this is confirming, naming things you deeply know. It's I like at one level, you don't actually need the teacher. And yet you come in, you're like, but I'm willing to be the teacher to help guide you on the way. But if you had a different experience, you wouldn't actually need me in this moment. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And the, um, you know, the, the finding utterance for what is deep within us um, is is so liberating. I, th I think mm. that the, 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 this connection between uh, speaking and um, and further living into the wisdom that, that's being uttered is, is so important. Uh, just before the pandemic, I, I was in um, doing some teaching in the United States and uh, the talk I was giving uh, in particular, the one I'm remembering, was when I was speaking about those opening words from St. John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then uh, John goes on to say, and everything has been spoken into being. Everything uh, is essentially an utterance uh, of the One. Um, uh, th that is what 
you, you know, are, Kevin, at the heart of your being. You're a unique and unrepeatable utterance of God. And um, so I, I was emphasizing uh, this and using the word utter and utterance. And at the end of the talk, someone came up to me and said, is there a connection between the word utter and the word uterus? Uh, and I, I said, you know, I think you're on something really important. So I'm, I mean, I you love said it. I don't know, but I sure hope so, because man, that's a great, that's a great thing to teach, right? Yeah, there. I mean that. And uh, so I, I, you know, the next dictionary I could get a hold of, and I love dictionaries. I, I love to find the origin of words and the development of, of words. And sure enough, uh, the word utter uh, comes from uh, the same. Uh, root as uterus wow so, um, so that that throws another deeper richer lighter uh, light on these opening words from john's gospel it's really saying that everything is an utterance in the sense that everything has come forth from the womb of god everything wow. has come forth from from the very essence of god uh, and um and to, to know that each one of us is is this unique and unrepeatable expression of the one, and that what we're being called into is to live from from that deep expression of the divine that has uttered or, or expressed us into being. Mm, wow. Um, that person who came up and said that, that's so, so good. You're like, I really hope it is. And then to discover that connection right there. And I promise right now for people listening in who, who follow my journey at all, if you see that in a future book of mine, <laughs> whether, whether or not I credit JP for this conversation, you know, you know where it's coming from. Yeah. Uh, well, that, that one's free of charge. Oh yes, yes, yes. <laughs> you know, something I mean, the story of the woman in Virginia, I think, and, and you do you do spend a few places in the intro talking about the importance of, you know, when you write things like we know things in the core of our being that we have not necessarily been taught, or you write instead at its core is the conviction that we essentially need to keep listening to what our soul already knows. This is not just profound, but critical parts of our life and moving towards wholeness and growing. And I'm so glad that you know, we were on the same page when you told that story. But when we look at the Celtic tradition and some of these great voices, you know, this lineage, this perennial tradition that you yourself are not only writing about, but flowing in and, and also moving forward. I want to talk some about the earth and matter and spirit and creation and the cosmos and how the universe for the Celts is the primary cathedral that we attend every single second of our lives, which is why you always have an excuse if you didn't go to church because you're already there all the time. And I write about this, or, or I, when I talk about this right now, a part of my own experience not growing up and feeling a great sense of connection with the church or having that. I mean, I did, I went to Catholic school for second and third grade. And to this day in fourth grade, when I was nine and I left, I'm still not sure if my parents couldn't afford it or if the school recommended that it probably isn't the best for me because I was a naughty boy <laughs> at the time. I'm not sure what happened. All I know is in fourth grade, the first day I went to public school and kids were cussing and fighting at nine years old, that was my form of salvation at the time being in that environment. It just felt so good. Yeah. But for me, moving into 16, 17, 18, eventually when I started paying attention, the trees were teaching me the wisdom of the ages, the sunset I would watch would preach a sermon about beauty <clears throat> and things fleeting and how, yes, this moment's beautiful, but actually the moment is simply a reminder that everything's beautiful by right? all of this wisdom that's flowing through water. It was like, I never heard a sermon in my life, but I felt like everywhere I went, once I started paying attention was just overwhelming me and it was the wisdom of the spirit flowing through that which it was present in creation that was so much of my own 
journey, which is why the Celts and the, the tradition that you flow out of speak so profoundly to me because it's so simple. You can ignore it, but so obvious when you see it, it's like dumbfounding. It's, you know, and you, it never stops and it just keeps going for the rest of your life. And there's things, you know, the sage in the book of Proverbs speaks of the wisdom about paying attention to locusts and lions and badgers and fields. And he speaks of ants in Proverbs 6 and says, go and consider its ways and become wise, right? The scriptures seem to reveal the spirit who speaks through rocks and wants to cry out through creation and always present. You know, it's like all of creation is a sanctuary. In our church, when I have preached on these things before, I'm like, this sermon you hear from me shouldn't be the only sermon you hear throughout the week because that plumeria on the side of the road is waiting to speak to you about what it means to just be fully yourself and that's it in this world, right? And the Celts are so flowing in all of that and reminding all of us collectively of that. And you write the Celtic spiritual tradition is one that has long emphasized an awareness of the sacred essence of all things. And you say this, and I love it. This is because the Celts consider the forests and the mountains to be their temples and who regard the earth and the human mystery as sacred. How can you speak to that a little bit? How central was the earth and physicality and matter and nature to the Celts sense of spirit? And also like, what does that say to us today? Mm. I think the first uh, teacher that I draw on from from the Celtic stream is not, in fact, Pelagius, but uh, even before Pelagius, we uh, we have some of the teachings of a second second century teacher from Gaul named Irenaeus of Lyon, and uh, one of the things that he's concerned about as early as the second century, uh, is a growing uh, tendency in Mediterranean Christianity uh, uh, of his time to, uh, to make a separation between God and the earth or to, um, to, to uh, see, see uh, that what is called into being is not from the womb of God, not part of this uttering and utterance from the uterus of the divine. Um, uh, but a, a teaching that later came to be referred to doctrinally as the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, in which it was taught that a distant creator fashioned the universe out of nothing, ex nihilo. And... Um, Irenaeus says uh, creation uh, didn't come out of nothing. Uh, creation comes out of the very essence. And the word that he uses is a bit shocking to our Western dualistic ears. Uh, he says everything actually comes out of the substance of God, uh, which is to say that this stuff, you know, the stuff of the human body, the stuff of the body of the earth is sacred stuff. Uh, and, and how we handle um, one another's bodies in relationship, how we care uh, for those who are suffering physically, how we care uh, for the, the matter of the earth and how we work for its just distribution. These are sacred matters. So um, really early on, uh, we, we find that in, in the teachings of someone like Irenaeus. And uh, it's a signal, of course, um, a, a warning signal against where the church went in the fourth century, because one of the first doctrines that was promulgated when Christianity became the religion of empire was the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, mm -hmm. uh, because what the empire wanted to to uh, the church to do, and this is true of every every empire, what every empire, whether Roman, British, American, wants to do is, uh, is to do as they please with the matter of the earth. Um, so th this is a teaching that has radical implications for us as individuals, but also collectively as, as nations. How, how are we treating the matter of the earth? Uh, 
when you were uh, speaking about uh, the, the word uh, earlier, Kevin, I, I was remembering again uh, this Orkney poet, Ed, Edwin Muir, and one of his uh, poems occurs uh, with him sitting or imagining that he's sitting in on a st- in on a steer Presbyterian church up in the north of Scotland, mm-hmm. and uh, he says, looking at the pulpit that sort of dominates this. Uh, this ecclesiastical space, he says, and the word made flesh is here made word again. Um, so uh, it's, it's sort of the way we've t- taken the sort of radical physicalness of incarnation, the word made flesh. So all, uh, you know, everything that has being is, is the utterance, is the word, is the expression of God, the living, living word. And, uh, and we've taken this radical embodiment of God in matter uh, and turned it back into an idea, turned it back into uh, a verbal utterance. Um, I was also thinking of that great teacher that I, I look at in Chapter 3, uh, John Scotus Eriugina, the ninth century teacher. And he says, if God were to stop speaking, uh, everything would cease to exist. So uh, everything is essentially this ongoing expression. Um, and it is ongoing. It's forever unfolding. Uh, to, to say that you or to say that I am essentially an expression of God is not to make a, some sort of static expression um, because the word keeps unfolding. The word keeps flowing. And, and in fact, uh, one of the things that Ariagina says is that the, the name God, the word God, is derived from the Greek uh, word theos. Um, and Ariagina says that theos uh, is derived from the, the, from the verb theo, to flow. Um, mm. Because God is the one who flows like a subterranean flow mm. of sacred energy that is deep within you and deep within me and deep within everything that has being. Uh, But to to move on to the really important question, and this is a question that uh, is important to me always uh, in my my writing and and teaching, is, well, how how does this ancient wisdom relate to today? Mm -hmm. How how does it actually impact um, this moment in time and, and how we relate to one another and how we handle the sacredness of the earth. And my teacher um, is, is the sort of star of chapter eight in the book. That's George MacLeod, the founder of the modern day Iona community in Scotland. And uh, one of George MacLeod's mantras of teaching and belief was the phrase matter matters. Mm. Because at the heart of the material is the spiritual. And, and what we do to matter, uh, how we handle one another in relationship, how we care for the poor in our nations, how we uh, care for the, the matter of the earth, uh, these matter, these matters matter. Uh, and um, it's precisely that that is, that is the uh, direction and, um, and vision of, of true spirituality, mm. that it, it, it to me, to to me, to my mind, to my heart, uh, that that is where a great spiritual tradition is to be evaluated. How how does it translate into action? Yeah. Wow. So good. Yeah. Matter matters. The resurrection <laughs> means that matter itself matters. Yes. God to reality to to everything, and you know to even. With that emphasis in the book, and even with what you just said of taking the great wisdom of the Celts in this perennial tradition and translating it and allowing it essentially to be born again in a fresh way for where we are today and where we're going. You know, you, I don't want to say I was surprised, but it's interesting in your chapter, and you already mentioned it once briefly right now, how in the intro you talk about the Black Lives Matter movement. Just very briefly as a, you know, this the murder of George Floyd and immediately <clears throat> there's this uprising and awakening and you talk about how, so there's something resonating that we already know within us. 
But when we think about, you know, the past year, depending on people's awareness of the way institutionalized white supremacy and systemic racism has shaped um, specifically the United States of America and economic systems and cultural flows and politics and power dynamics, right? A lot of people have been awakened, like even that phrase systemic racism, right? That's a new phrase for a lot of people the past year and a half or so. And that's a good thing. There's a collective openness to start to see that in new ways. So when you think about Black Lives Matter, why in 2020, that was still a radical thing to say for some people. Or we look at the movement of the LGBTQ community and this movement towards equality, this movement towards acceptance, this movement towards inclusion. These are some of the things that people in the United States and younger people are thinking about and wrestling with, right? And and working towards the progress of today. So to even concretize this Celtic wisdom of matter matters, like George, here's what I'm saying. What does George McLeod saying matter matters have anything to do with, or how does it shape us when we think about the sacredness of another, how we relate to the LGBTQ community as people of faith and just people in general, or how we support or our role in something like Black Lives Matter, right? What does George McLeod and Matter Matter say to the people today who care deeply about this progress and this movement of affirming the dignity and humanity of groups that historically haven't always been affirmed or welcomed? Hmm. Yeah, I, I think in the, in the case of someone like George McLeod, but I, I would say that this is consistently true of the teachers that I've uh, chosen to focus on in the book, but uh, we have, um, I suppose, m much more immediate access to someone like George McLeod, who who overlapped uh, with my life. He was a he was a man in his eighties when I first met him in my twenties, uh, and became a very important figure in my life. And I, I think for for George McLeod, matter matters meant a commitment, uh, specifically in the Scottish context, to work with inner city situations of poverty. Um, mm -hmm. he, he worked in, in some of the worst slums of, of Scotland in the 1930s and following. And very importantly, although a lot, a lot of his sort of inspiration and sort of color of inspiration and vision comes from the beautiful island of Iona in the Hebrides of Scotland. He was always very careful to say and to remind us that a place like Iona uh, is, is a place of inspiration. It's a place where the eyes of our heart are, uh, can be washed so that we can see more clearly the sacredness, not just of a beautiful place like Iona, but to see the, the beauty of those uh, living in the midst of uh, poverty and damp housing and so on that he was working in the midst of. Uh, for George, it also translated very much into a belief in nonviolence. And uh, that for him is, was one of the, the direct implications of, of me saying uh, that you are sacred, it means that I'm not, I'm not going to be violent against you. It, it means that I'm going to look always to, to the sacred essence of your being and do what I can to um, invite you back in, into that essence. And sometimes, of course, uh, that challenge uh, that we are to offer one another has to be a very emphatic and prophetic no. We need to speak no to the wrong and the falseness that the other is doing. But for George McLeod, that prophetic no needed always to be undergirded by this deeper yes to the true essence Absolutely. of the other. And, and never forgetting uh, that that uh, that we are to be nonviolent, not only in in action, but but in thought and, mm. and in heart. 
So um, that was important for George MacLeod. I, I think one of the other uh, things that I have so cherished about George MacLeod, and in many ways I, I, I cherish him more and more um, as, as I myself age and hopefully mature, mature <laughs> is, um, is that he, he linked his vision very closely with community and with relationship. Mm. And uh, there's a deep uh, emphasis on, on, on that interrelationship that we find again as early as Pelagius. Because one of the beautiful practices that Pelagius points to is the spiritual practice of having um, what was called an anamkara, uh, which simply means a friend of the soul. Mm. And uh, Pelagius said that uh, a person without an anamkara or a friend of the soul was like um, a body without a head. Mm. Uh, in other words, pretty important. And he was saying that, that we, we should uh, show ourselves entirely to, our, to the lover of our soul, to, mm. to the friend. And, and, of course, this is not just singular. Sometimes it can be more like a, communi a community of soul friends. Mm. People who love us uh, well enough to uh, say, you know, Ke Kevin, who, who are you trying to fool? Uh, mm. here in, in, how you, in how you're living or how you're speaking. Uh, someone who, who loves us enough to call us to account. But one of the important aspects of the Anamkara relationship is, is that uh, when I try to give voice, and this sort of links back to something we were talking about earlier, the importance of utterance and expression. When I try to give expression to what is in my soul, to, to my anamkara, my lover of my soul. Um, it, it's not that my, the lover of my soul uh, knows more of what is within me than I do. It's more that the very act of trying to give expression to what is it within me leads to more clarity and mm. consciousness right, within absolutely. me of, what, of what's happening in my soul. Mm. Um, so we see something of this dynamic as early as Pelagius and, and right through to someone like George MacLeod that, it, that is, is in and through one another uh, that we come to a greater seeing, but also that we come to greater accountability because I think when we begin to articulate some of the sacredness of the other, the sacredness of the earth, we... Uh, find ourselves um, in, in, in a greater accountability to act in relation to, to where our growing awareness and consciousness of the sacred, sacredness of the other leads us to. And again, it's this, it's this um, flow uh, between awareness and, and action. Um, and and that's, that's something that's been really important for me, and uh, you mentioned earlier the um, the school of earth and soul, and uh, it's really a threefold vision that that we have in the school, and and that is to to uh, grow in consciousness and awareness of the sacred, to allow that study and consciousness to be coupled with spiritual practices of prayer and meditation. And then to see both the study consciousness piece, the spiritual practice piece, that combination leading us into um, a greater strength and depth of action. Yeah, I so appreciate your words about community and about a soul friend. That's that's so profound for today. And you know, I think there, there's obviously a complexity of things to be said about our growing, you know, digital media information age. But, you know, one of the profound writers who probably wrote this book, I want to say seven years ago, maybe it's an MIT professor named Cheryl Turkle and her book and her finding as she's writing about media and what it does to relationships is she wrote a book called Alone Together. And that's her essential kind of core thing that holds the book together is the more that we're together connected in these digital spaces, the easier it is to feel alone and to feel 
isolated. And that comes from the ability to control, manage perception, right? I have, I can put myself on display, but at a deeper level, there is no real allowing myself to be seen by the friend, by the community. And even that's something with a community of faith like ours, where we have so many younger people and our emphasis on community, like even something like confession, you know, where I say to people like confession, isn't something God needs from you for him. It's something God gives to you for yourself. Cause if you can learn to be honest and open and vulnerable with other people and have them hold that space of compassion, non-judgmental awareness, that might be the only open door to you trusting that it's actually the, it's actually the spirit who's always holding that space for you. Like the community, the soul friend doesn't just become a temporary space for the spirit of God to flow through. They are the incarnational spirit of God. See, God is seeing you in them, through them and with them. So in community, I'm always like, you get to practice here and learn what's just true everywhere at all times, but you need a concrete place to first touch. And that's the beauty of the incarnational life, you know, what we invite people into. So yeah, I think the community, that soul friend is, is something that's, easy to maneuver around right now but there's just never a substitute for the reality of that embodied friendship and presence and life of god through and with the other yes and um that that's so important and uh, the um one of the just to to add to that or or to speak of a of another dimension of that depth of sharing and that depth depth of openness. Uh, Columba of Iona, the sixth century saint uh, who was so important in the development of uh, the Celtic Christian vision from, from Iona in the sixth century and following. One of his rules of community and as far as I can see it, 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 it is unique in, in, in any monastic community at that stage. And one of the beautiful things about the Celtic monastic uh, communities is that they each had their own unique rule. They, they had a sort of family likeness between monastic communities. But again, it wasn't some central ecclesiastical authority dictating a uniformity of rule uh, everywhere. It was allowing each community to to find its own articulation, its own uh, living of, of their devotion to Christ and the sacredness of the earth. But uh, uh, one of the rules of Columbus community was pray until the tears come. Mm-hmm. Uh, pray until the tears come. And, and that, uh, you know, it, so many of us have been reared in the Western world, especially as men, um, very uh, cautious of, of allowing the tears to flow. And um, sometimes we've, we've thought that that equals lack of strength. Mm. In, instead of, uh, I believe, seeing, seeing that the flow of tears are sometimes uh, the profoundest show of, of strength within us to allow ourselves to feel the brokenness, but also to sometimes tears come when we're so intensely um, aware of, of love and Absolutely. Uh, aware of the beauty and glory of the earth and of the mother. So uh, pray until the tears come. It, it's, it's a very beautiful expression. And it's one over the years that I've... I've sort of witnessed uh, uh, on on Iona, it's sort of an island of tears. Um, many people have spoken to me about first stepping onto the island and and sort of finding themselves, um, finding tears. Uh, mm-hmm. And sometimes it comes much later during a pilgrimage to Iona when people have, have much more consciously entered a time of reflection and allowing themselves to be challenged and sort of called back to their sacred essence. Um, but it's, uh, it's something that, that I think is so important. And, and uh, I, I know in my own life, um, 
at a time of, of sort of great brokenness in our family in relation to mental illness, um, mental illness of one of my sons. Uh, I, um, I thought as the father of this family, I must be strong. I, I must sort of hold us together. I must sort of protect us in this time of, of pain and vulnerability. And, uh, and I didn't allow the tears to flow. Um, and um, I, was, I had actually written about this, this journey of mental illness and, and suffering. And, um, and, and I was actually re- reading something I had written in, in, in a recording box, in a recording studio in San Antonio, Texas. <laughs> and it was in the recording box as I read about the journey of suffering and mental illness, I began to weep. Wow. Uh, and that was a very important moment for me to uh, allow myself to get in touch. And then when I came back to Scotland, I did um, quite intentionally sort of show my tears and allow my tears. And that was, that was a really significant moment for us as mm. a family. And I think wow. that that's, where, that's when we found more strength rather than this notion of, you know, I as the sort of male head of the family need to right. keep, keep my act together emotionally. Yes. So showing, no. uh, oh, man, yes. showing, showing vulnerability, I think, is part of the journey to wholeness. Yeah. No, there, oh, there's so much there. There's an entire episode. That's an entire book right there. And <laughs> if I may, there's immediately so many things come to mind. One, it makes me think of the story you told in the rebirthing of God about your father's experience. I believe when he was in Cambodia. Yes. And yes. how he would share messages with you guys over audio tapes. And at one moment when he found himself weeping, he just let himself weep on the tape. And that phrase kind of stays with me from that, like, don't shut off the tapes, meaning yeah. you have to let the tears flow. And, yeah. you know, now and talks about how later in life he discovers that prayer is so much just actually grieving. And Cynthia Bergeau says, I'm starting to, or it's not verbatim, but she says, I'm, I've discovered the most profound product of the world is tears. And, you know, JP and I were talking about intros to books before I clicked record. And one of the lines that ends a section in the intro to the forthcoming book I was telling you about is the peace the mystic has in public is born out of the tears they've shed in private. And that story of the expectations of the Western male to out of his own ego strength and ambition and power to hold the family together through this suppressing of tears and the holding together that, that sense of strength. And it's a profound paradox to think it's the very refusal to hold things together and the allowing of the tears to flow that mysteriously actually becomes the very source of holding things together because it's through that that when we allow the spirit to hold us together the spirit then all of a sudden has this space to flow through to hold everything together like colossians 117 talks about and so when i hear stuff like this i'm like sometimes when i preach or when i think about the wisdom that comes from the age is the wisdom that comes from the experience, right? When someone can say tears are the most profound product, right? Tears are what flows through us in those deep contemplative spaces when we're holding together the crucifixion and the resurrection, the joy and the pain. And it's not two things, it's one, and you're starting to accept that. And the tears are naturally just, they seem to just flow out of you when you come to terms with some of those deep realities of what it means to live in the world as a human. And I'm around like 20 year olds. I'm like, just remember this. And at 41, you're going to need to know this <laughs> because right now when there's so much just like ambition and you go and that's great because we, we unfold through stages, but there's some things I say, I'm like, shelve this, make a note. But when you're 37, and your marriage is shaky when you're 42 and you're dealing you're dealing with some of the realities of life take this and then let it disassemble you and take you apart because those are the moments you need that profound wisdom yeah absolutely yeah here's here's a so we talked about you know there's so much to say but the book the celtic tradition sacred earth 
sacred soul, all of this good stuff that I can keep going with. But there is, this is a, a question that flows out of something you write in the book, but just in general. But I do think it has so much value to bring to others as the last question. You know, you write in the book, although the stream of wisdom that I will be drawing on here is largely from Celtic Christian teachers, it resonates with the deep spiritual wisdom of other great religious traditions as well. And you use the phrase, correct me if I say it wrong, but you're like, I am a grateful child of the Christian tradition. You say something like that, right? Christian household. Christian household, even better. I love it. Grateful child of the Christian household. That's amazing. Another thing, if you hear me say that phrase in the future, that's, I came up, that's mine right there. (laughs) But if some people feel tension about if you can do this, right? Being a child of the household you're in while appreciating the depth and drawing from the beauty of other traditions. You know, some, some people's orientation of faith is that might be dangerous. You know, how can you do that? We have the truth. We have a monopoly on the truth. You know, or some people actually who want to remain grateful, rooted children in their own Christian household, but know there's ways to draw from other traditions. How does, so their question is not if, but it's how. How does one stay rooted in the depths of their own tradition or household while still drawing deeply from the perennial legacy of mystics or the wisdom of other traditions of faith? Hmm. My own experience, uh, and that's speaking from my life, but also uh, from from teachers from other great spiritual traditions that I've been graced to to get to know and to and to be blessed by. Uh, my my own observation is is that we can only move more deeply uh, by by uh, digging. Uh, within one's own tradition, uh, and uh, and I believe that the deeper we move, the deeper I move within my Christian household tradition, uh, the closer I'm coming to the heart and the uh, inspirations and the vision of of other traditions. That I think we meet at that deep deep level, but I think that each one of us is being called to move as deeply as possible within our tradition of inheritance uh, and and to hold that with uh, a reverence and an openness to the wisdom of other traditions you know um one of the one of the uh, teachers from another tradition who's been very important to me is uh, rabbi Nachum Ordlev from uh, Santa Fe in New Mexico mm. And I'm very aware in our relationship, and and it, it it has unfolded now over many years. And like all true uh, relationship, it should sometimes be a wrestling match, um, mm. a wrestling um, uh, uh, around truth, wrestling in love, and and knowing how to challenge one another. And um, and I, one of the uh, things that I've realized in my relationship with Rabbi Nachum, for instance, is that he looks to me uh, not to downplay my Christian wisdom. He looks to me uh, and expects me to be true to my Christian wisdom and mm-hmm. inheritance. That's what he's looking to me for. He's not looking... Uh, to me to somehow play down our distinctiveness, uh, to meet in some sort of stripped down common Mm. land or common territory. And similarly, that's what I'm looking to him for. Uh, Mm. What I most love and have have most been blessed by is his Torah study, his, uh, his this rabbinic way of accessing the wisdom of Scripture. And um, mm. I, I wouldn't want him to to be something less than his beautiful Jewish self, and uh, and I think that's that that's what he looks to me uh, for as well. And I think that that when we when we can hold that combination of digging deeper and deeper in our own tradition, 
and at the same time having this attentiveness to the uh, true heart of the other tradition, mm. then then I think we'll find <clears throat> ourselves being enriched. And uh, the other thing I'd want to say about that is is that it's not just uh, about paying attention to the to the the mind uh, and the articulated wisdom of of other traditions. I. Uh, uh, to, to give a bit of sort of biographical, autobiographical background to my own journey, I was reared in a very uh, conservative evangelical family. And uh, I will always, that's, that's not where um, I, I am now in terms of my spirituality and my theology, but I will always be very deeply grateful for the way in which that tradition in my uh, birth family um, nurtured uh, the ability to pay attention to the heart. Mm. Um, and because I find myself now in interfaith contexts and ecumenical contexts and often speaking uh, across the boundaries that, that have been used to separate us from, from one another as religions and cultures and nations. I find in conversation across any of those boundary lines that what I first and foremost pay attention to uh, is the heart of the other. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that when we listen at the heart level, we're of course listening much deeper than than the realm of doctrine and uh, articulated belief systems and so on. And, uh, and that's a place where uh, that, is, that is much deeper and I think truer to the essence of ourselves and, mm. and the other than any uh, sort of creedal statements but where we stand. And, uh, and I, th I think that that is the real essence of of the teachings of Jesus, mm. I think that for me is about loving the other, uh, really wow. paying attention to their, to their essence. So good. Yeah, I think that's why, that's why Wilbur says, you know, the truth of a spiritual statement is not just in the objective content of the speaker, it's in the subjective state of the speaker. Not is what you're saying true, are you true to this? Have you lived out what you're, you know, what you've learned, are you embodying what you're expressing right now? And that is a resonance that you can sense so deeply, you know, when you're tuned into that. So I so appreciate you saying that. I, the event I was at in New York this weekend, Rabbi Orr Rose was there and I'd never been around him before. Oh, I was like, I, this guy has to be my friend. Yeah, He's an amazing guy. <laughs> I, I never been around him. It was awesome. Great. That is about an hour. The book the new book that you can start with and then work backwards through all of Dr. Newell, who I call JP, who you can figure that out if you ever come across him. The new book, Sacred Earth, Sacred Soul, Celtic Wisdom for Reawakening to What Our Souls Know and Healing the World. And July 10th, I just saw on his Instagram, July 10th, he has like a virtual book launch event with him and Rob Bell. So like I said, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. So he's going, he's going to be with Rob next Saturday, I believe. So I was basically without Rob knowing it, I was like the, the opening act for Rob and for JP. So I'm, warm, I'm warming him up right now before he goes out. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll tell Rob that. And tell um, that. Uh, if I could uh, sort of put in another sort of plug for that virtual book launch Please. on the 10th of July, you know, uh, we waited for the longest time to see whether it could be a physical book launch because, you know, as we've been saying, there's nothing quite like uh, uh, physical, the physicalness of our being and, and being together. But um, it, when it became clear that we couldn't have a physical uh, gathering for the book launch, I, I found myself asking, well, how can we make it celebratory? Um, mm. You know, we're not going to be sort of lifting our glass of, champagne as we would do if we were physically together so, you know how can we how can we make this <clears throat> and um so there there are sort of three really really fun to me anyway exciting ingredients to the book launch 
And uh, so the one is a dialogue with Rob Bell. So much better than me droning on for half an hour about, about my book. Um, much more interesting and exciting <laughs> to be in dialogue with someone like Rob Bell, who you know, whose mind is sort of brilliant, making connections all over the place. And um, he's he's fun and um, and he's deeply perceptive. So that's going to be a fun part of it. Also, I've I, one of my daughters is a, a dancing daughter, a professional dancer, and um, I've I've uh, commissioned her to. Um, to do a, a, a special piece of choreography and wow. um, entitled St. Bridget and the Divine Feminine. Mm. Um, and Bridget is uh, the second chapter in the book. So we're going to have dance, a pre-recorded wow. bit of dance, but the premiere performance uh, of this dance. And, then, and one of my sons is, um, is a fiddler uh, in the Scottish wow. tradition. And uh, I've commissioned... Uh, a special piece of music that will be premiered by Cameron, my son, uh, with some beautiful videography done up in the Orkney Islands. Wow. And, uh, so uh, I, it's going to be fun. And, yeah, it's uh, amazing. So without any apology, I, I sort of um, invite, invite you all to be there. <laughs> Absolutely. July 10th, the virtual book launch. As he's a great, a grateful child of the Christian household, you get to experience some of the Newell household and the family celebration. That's right. I mean, it's it's, it's verging on being a Newell von Trapp event, but uh. <laughs> that's already the picture I'm getting in my mind. <laughs> that's what I'm seeing. So, JP, thank you one more time for taking the time to do this. The book, Sacred Earth, Sacred Soul pre-order order that as soon as possible and then work your way back through all of his work truly one of the you look at voices on the edge who are who are who the spirit is using to draw humanity and the christian tradition forward and from my perspective jp is one of those great voices right now so please get in tune with what he's doing you will not regret it so jp thank you again sir for this thank you blessings to you kevin okay Bye-bye.